Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, as you and the listeners of the Tipping Pitches podcast well know, my relationship to Mets fandom has been a roller coaster ride. I've, of course, remained a steadfast fan and loved the team this whole time. But my working through it in real time as to how invested I want to be in the day-to-day wins and losses has been an ongoing plot, an ongoing through line of this podcast. In the past, I've talked a little bit about my superstitions for the year. You know, what do I, what do I wear? What's my lucky shirt? What's this? What's that? So I wanted to. We're now, it's April 23rd. The Mets have been playing baseball for almost a month. And so I thought it might be high time to tell you and everybody else what my current Mets superstition is yeah. for this baseball season. I want to know. So um, as listeners of the show know, I have a dog. Her name is Stevie. She makes an occasional, occasional appearance on the podcast vocally, but she is always on the podcast in that she is often laying on your lap while we are right. recording the episodes. Uh, we're remote today, and so she is laying on the floor behind me. The superstition this season is we have a, a bandana for her that she wears, and this bandana is reversible. It's a great item. On one side, it's the Mets home jersey design, and on the other side, it's the Mets away jersey design. It's blue with an orange Mets logo. So the superstition is that we need to line the bandana up with whether the Mets are home or away. Mm. (laughs) So on this long road trip, she's been wearing blue. It's been on the away side. And so far, they haven't lost a series with with us lining it up this way. That's Obviously, that will not sustain itself for the whole season, but there's some kind of juice there. There's something there. It started working after their slow start. So it sounds like you're you're kind of putting your eggs into the basket of just whether or not the the Mets are traveling or not, right? I mean, Stevie well, is just is just effectively kind of following in their in their footsteps. She's almost being like the clubby for them, right. you know. Like she's when they're home, she's got the home jersey on. When they're away, she's got the away jersey on. She's tracking their every move, mm-hmm. you know, and she's got she's got kind of a good energy, a good luck charm about her yeah i don't know why that is because she's she's kind of a devil in many ways but she does seem to have a sort of supernatural effect on them last year during the playoffs um for about a game and a half when she would jump up and lay on the couch they would play a lot better than when she was laying on the ground (laughs) so you know i mean that's that's analytics right there that is the arms race to nowhere that Rob was talking about. That's honestly true. The only, the only reason I, I ask about that is because I was going to say, well, is there a way to sort of track, you know, how the super, superstition is working? But I think the tracking of that would just be the Mets record, yeah, the record at the end of the year. Yeah, I see what you're saying in that, like, the variable factor in this superstition is just, are the Mets <laughs> home just, or away? And right. Did we remember to change Stevie's bandana? I don't know. I'm not willing to risk it. No. I'm not willing to risk a placebo group. You know, right. I'm not willing to take her bandana off. Yeah. So when we record the podcast, though, I do have to take her collar off 
because it jingles too much. And the bandana is attached to the collar. So what I'm telling you is that we have to wrap this thing up okay. before the Mets game starts <laughs> whenever we're doing the pod. That's good to know, actually. <laughs> That's just for your FYI, for your information. Right. That's just little little producing. Are you working on any uh, new superstitions for the Oakland Athletics this year? You got anything going? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. When I uh, do not watch them, um, they just don't play. If I'm not watching them, they're just not even there. That's my superstition. I thought, I thought you were going to say, when I don't watch them, they lose by 10. And yes. when I do watch them, they lose by 6 they lose or by like less. like 15, yeah. <laughs> well, 15. <laughs> Can I tell you something? When, I, when I, I get score notifications for the A's and the Mets, it's yeah. high time I shut the score notifications off for the A's. You should really the shut A's. the A's ones off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do that for you because I love you and I love, I, you know, I love connecting with you through baseball. I And in past years, it would be like, oh, Chris Davis, Homer, A's take the lead. You know, oh, oh Marcus Simeon, double to the right field gap. A's take the lead. And I could text you and I'd be like, let's go, Marcus Simeon, you know, because some of the best texts that I've ever gotten from you have been when you tell me stuff about the Mets before I saw that it happened. Right. Like, I don't know if we've ever said this on the pod, but you broke the Ioannis Cespedes trade to me. You right. were the first person who told me because I was at work, so it's not on Twitter, and I got a text message from you. And I was like, oh, Alex is texting me. This is rare. <laughs> it's the summer. <laughs> he, usually his phone is like shut off for three straight weeks. <laughs> he's, he's hiking a national park. Exactly. He's hiking Yellowstone. I'm like, Alex is texting me. It must be something important. And sure enough, it was. It was Ioannis Cespedes getting traded to the Mets. And so that's why I've kept the score notifications on. And yesterday, I was like, oh, A's, 2 nothing lead. They're fighting back against all mm-hmm. of this bullshit, all these bullshit rumors about them going to Vegas. You know what? They're going to buckle down. Resilience. Yeah. You love to see it. And then I, then I put my phone down, just hanging out with some friends, came back to the phone. I was like, oh, the A's gave up a run. Let's see what the score is now. It's 16-2. to mm-hmm. Texas Rangers in the lead. Mm-hmm. I started using like Apple's new like whatever dynamic like home screen widget. Oh, you know, yeah. you can like add stuff yeah. on there and you can add like baseball scores. And yeah. I was doing that for the first couple weeks of the season and I've stopped because I don't want the A score on my home screen. Every that's time an I look invention at my phone. of the devil. Yeah, that's that, not, that really is. That was designed to keep us down, brother. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to see that. I need to opt in to knowing right, about the exactly. Mets and the A's. Like I don't need it to be like just passively there. Anytime I open my phone. Uh, okay. We have a fun episode coming up. We, um, it's a little out of left field today. We talked to historian and podcaster Mike Duncan, who I'm sure many of you know from his podcast, either The History of Rome or Revolutions or his many books about history. Uh, Mike Duncan is a huge baseball fan, an incredibly fun and funny person to talk to. He's a diehard Mariners fan. So we talked a little bit about that. We talked about baseball history and how it relates to and how baseball presents its own history in the present and how that informs how we, you know, relate to the sport. Uh, it was just a, it was a great conversation. And we were lucky to talk to Mike, who we are both big fans of. Before Mike comes on, we're going to talk a little bit about the recent news that maybe the A's aren't moving, but they probably are. But maybe they're not. But whoa, slow down. Slow everybody slow their roll. Uh, sure, sure, suspension since we didn't have time to talk about that on our A's reaction pod. And uh some more news about what Major League Baseball wants in the next CBA, even though we are one year into the current CBA. Uh, we're going to talk about all that in just a second. But before we do, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And you are listening 
to Tipping Pitches. Alex, you sent me a tweet from one John Ralston, a reporter at the Nevada Independent, who wrote a follow-up article to the Nevada Independent article that broke the news that the A's were buying a plot of land, 49-acre plot of land, just off the Vegas Strip to develop a new baseball stadium in Las Vegas instead of Oakland, where the team actually is based. John Ralston and his colleagues over at the Nevada Independent wrote a follow-up, quote, we have, more details on the, we have more details on the deal to bring the A's to Vegas, and it's not so sure as the cheerleaders would have you think. Reporting from Vegas and Carson finds lawmakers and government suddenly not so gushy, and we have more info about the $500 million public financing. Did we get duped? <laughs> have we been hoodwinked? Have we been bamboozled, led astray, run amok? I'm just so tired, you know? <laughs> like this, I just honestly, honestly, I feel worse seeing this story than the original story. Right, like yeah. if they're just gonna do this again, if they're gonna walk it back again, just tear the band-aid off. Literally, like just you're just stabbing the just the tip of the knife just slightly into me. Just like just shake me. Just do it. Like yeah. just just do it. I even said they had pulled the band-aid off on Thursday night when we did the pod. And I guess right. they're just Smacking it right back on. Right. So, I mean, it's it's clear that maybe the A's were not in as sure of a position with Las Vegas than maybe they intended to yeah. uh, communicate to the public, right? They signed this binding agreement to buy 49 acres of land to build a ballpark um, and plan to invest about a billion dollars. That doesn't take into account the fact that you still need money to buy the actual stadium, right? Just because you have a plot of land doesn't mean you have something to build there. And obviously, as we know, as MLB owners are wont to do, the A's are trying to see how much money they can squeeze out of Nevada taxpayers, right? So they want to basically raise $500 million in sales tax. Again, I know a few days ago, I was so happy to be done talking about these like Special tax districts and just, just doing rebates chat. Right, exactly. That's what we should name this episode. <laughs> tax rebates chat. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. And and Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo has supposedly said that he's done some backroom deals and like maybe he can pull the money together. But when you're trying to a build guy named a Joe one, Lombardo doing ta- backroom doing deals. backroom deals, I've seen not really what Scorsese I want to movie. <laughs> what I want to stake my major league baseball stadium on. Um, and in the past, we've had Nevada lawmakers say, you know, we really aren't comfortable giving public money for this. Right? Yeah. We're already we're already doing this for the Raiders at Allegiant Stadium. Sure. We can't put more of a burden on our taxpayers. And, you know, I have to commend the lawmakers who have come out and said that sort of thing. So that, that's actually a good thing to note, by the way, because we didn't really talk about that on Thursday, but the Las Vegas Knights was all privately financed. I, I'm sure they got some sort of like incentives and stuff from the county, but I don't think they took any public money, um, any public funds to build that stadium. The Raiders did. But it's kind of like a different thing with the NFL because they have just much more of a bully pulpit because of how popular they are and how dominant football is and how game-changing it really is to have a football team in Las Vegas just for like the different 
entertainment interests, sports betting interests, all of that. And Allegiant Stadium is kind of like a disaster of a project. And like nobody goes to it except rich people and celebrities and stuff and tourists. But like the NBA team, prospective NBA team that has been sort of like angling for getting a stadium there and whatnot, their communications about this have been that they were they able to get that bid adopted, it would be all privately financed. And that that is that is more part for the course for the NBA as well, where like they they want to completely own the area because the NBA is just frankly like flush with cash right now and they want to own everything and not have to follow all of the different things that come come attached to taking public money in terms of like building affordable housing and updating public transit and you know doing all this foundational work for the area and whatnot but and meanwhile MOB is just like we'll do all that shit because we want to do this for free you know like we don't want to put any of our own money that's like our business philosophy and so it's not like Las Vegas is just like we'll give public money to anybody and everybody no matter what that's an important distinction to make yeah definitely I just when I think about it I I have to wonder why Las Vegas would be interested in giving public money to a team at a time when clearly sports leagues are interested in Las Vegas as a destination. Major League Baseball is already talking about expansion. I have to think that if you really wanted to build a baseball team there, which it's clear that MLB does, that you could hold out until someone comes along and says, hey, we're going to build this privately finance stadium, right? Like you don't necessarily have to take the first offer that comes your way, especially, especially when it is the Oakland A's. Yeah. Like, like this is the team you're going to give $500 million to. Like, have you seen what they've been up to the last few years? Like, I don't, it just feels a little short-sighted. And so I think that's why we're seeing, you know, we're hearing these reports about cold feet from lawmakers that, I hate it when my lawmakers get cold feet. I do. I do, too. That's the worst. It's, well, I want my lawmakers to have warm feet. Socks. You know? <laughs> shoes. Slippers. Sensible shoes. You know? You mm-hmm. don't want back pain. It seems like maybe the A's jumped the gun a little bit. And I know we were talking about how, hey, you know, they they did the Wednesday night news dump, right? Right before the A's are out of sight, out of mind for two weeks. But it seemed like maybe they didn't anticipate that Oakland was going to say, oh, so you're moving to Las Vegas? Okay. We're done. Bye. Here's our here's our temporary plan for building a uh, a soccer stadium uh, for the Oakland Roots at the Oakland Coliseum site. Okay, that's fine. We didn't really need you. Do the Oakland Roots exist yet, or is that like an expansion franchise? I feel like they don't exist. Type that into your your Google. <laughs> Do the Oakland Roots exist? <laughs> I don't. I don't think they actually exist yet. Their website says premiering in spring 2023. Wow, they better build that stadium. <laughs> they gotta go quickly. <laughs> I'm sure they're building. I'm sure they're playing at the Coliseum until they're right. able to to build their own thing there. Right. Um, this reads like public negotiating, mm-hmm. and that's gross. Like if this turns out to be some sort of, I read this in a in the art of the deal bullshit from John Fisher and Dave Cavill. Like that's incredibly dirty and dysfunctional and just a total mess on behalf of Major League Baseball to attach their name to this plan to build a stadium in Las Vegas because Rob co-signed this at every step of the way and then literally was quoted in all of the articles about this move. And now maybe 
it does it smacks of desperation honestly like trying to bring Oakland back to the table or whatever and yeah. and get a more favorable deal from Oakland by saying we signed this binding agreement when the agreement is not necessarily binding and not up to the terms that you alluded to it being in that well you don't have this 500 million dollars of public funds from Las Vegas quite as wrapped up nicely as you think you do and I'd be curious to see how they thought this was going to play out in the A's fan base versus how it actually played out, which I don't know. I like, I I'm mindful of trying not to overreact to like the people that we are already in circles with, but it didn't really seem like anybody blamed Oakland for this. I'm sure like the silent majority of old fans who are not A's fans, like, like old people who live in Wyoming were like, this is great get them out of communist Oakland. You know, <laughs> we had a couple of those people in our replies and I'm like, are you a real person? Yeah. I don't really know. Well, they pay, were verified. You got to so. pay for Twitter blue before I <laughs> believe that you're real tweeting and shit like that to me. Um, and I, you know, I wonder if this is going according to their plan and if it is, it's a bad plan. I think for maybe the first like four to six hours, they thought it was going to plan. And then Didn't soon, even finish soon one realized that the, the, the public opinion had uh, handily shifted against them. Yeah, it. I still think they're going to Las Vegas for what it's worth. I mean, you're probably right. There's a new, there's a new mayor of Oakland who I think was is far less invested in getting them to stay. The, the the former mayor Libby Schaff had kind of staked her reputation on keeping the A's in Oakland, and now she's not in office anymore. Well, yeah, and, and because like she had already taken so many political hits from losing the Raiders and losing not really like losing the Warriors, but the but Warriors like, moving across the bay to San Francisco, losing yeah. them in the for the sake of Oakland, right? Right, exactly. And so I, it does feel like maybe the A's think they're holding more cards than they actually are. And I don't know. I mean, they're kind of getting what they deserve at this point, right? Like, my question is, what happens to this binding agreement if they don't move? So, like, the A's have to build a stadium, and then like a new team comes in and buys that from them. Does the new can the new team buy the binding agreement right. from them? Like, how does any of this work? <laughs> we need I, like a contract lawyer to come on the podcast and talk about this. I know, I know. Yeah, again, this is one of those things where I'm like. I'll believe it when it happens. When they, when they, when the shovels break ground. Okay. I don't think I'll believe it when the shovels break ground. I don't think I would believe it until they throw a pitch <laughs> in the Las Vegas stadium. <laughs> like oh. I'll, I, I would believe that the A's. I would believe even if they were building a new stadium in Las Vegas, if they. If the Las Vegas lawmakers, whatever, pulled the $500 million out at the last minute, even if the stadium structure was already being put into place, I would believe the A's would leave it as is, <laughs> not complete the stadium, yes, and play it like a community college for 2025 <laughs> before they would actually move and have to pay for it out of John Fisher's pockets. That is the truth, the God's honest truth. They would play at a local softball park before they would pay five hundred million dollars out of their own pocket. Yeah. Well, and and they're in this really awkward position where their lease at the Coliseum expires after next year, so it's kind of on 
the mayor to say, hey, we'll extend your lease or we won't. And then again, I like thought you they said, couldn't like extend the lease though because of what you're talking about. With our, where like they're bringing in, there's new projects that are being developed there that have already been promised they can start building in 2024. Well, exa- I mean, and that's just it, right? Is like this is where they've kind of overplayed their hand a little bit and said, okay, we're headed out. And the city of Oakland is like, okay, we have some plans for that spot then. Yeah, it's actually a pretty good spot. I don't know why you guys didn't <laughs> take more advantage <laughs> of it, you know? There's all these other people coming in who are like, this is where I want to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can actually do something with this. Yeah. Unlike the A's who pretended like the Coliseum was actually at the top of a mountain and you had to hike it to get there. And yeah. That's why no fans were coming. Right. And like, hey, it's not your downtown ballpark spot, right? It's not, it's not perfect, but like, you know. I'm out on the downtown ballpark, bro. Give me yeah. the uptown ballpark. None of this bullshit downtown ballpark. All right, cool. What does that mean? I can go get a $32 sandwich after the game. Great. Mm-hmm. Yes, cool. It does. That's awesome. I love that. Wow. Cool bricks on the outside of the stadium, dude. That's <laughs> right. what most people will see because they can't afford to go on the inside. <laughs> right. Exactly. Bricks with like graffiti that was commissioned by the team, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It has like a skate park in center field for some reason. You're like, you're not allowed to bring in a skateboard. But there's a skate park. In there Center is a skate field. park. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a good ballpark, though. Good downtown ballpark, San Diego. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Out on downtown ballparks, although the ones that exist do happen to be pretty good. Camden Yards, decent, decent place to see a ball game. I just think that the downtown ballpark might as well be like the ad revenue that Elon Musk keeps talking about. That would be great if Twitter made a hundred million dollars a month in ad revenue but it's not gonna happen so like i don't know why you just keep saying it because it's not coming (laughs) anything more to say on the a's no i i'm done talking about the a's should we take a should we take a two-week moratorium one month moratorium on even mentioning the a's in any capacity right like rolling band topics yeah i like that yeah i like that too okay sold (laughs) banned one month banned stevie (laughs) Banned. I don't. I don't know if she's in here anymore. She is. She's sleeping. Um, but she supports banned yeah. A's. Always has. Always will. <laughs> she's never worn any A's merch. Okay. From one dysfunctional situation to another, Max Scherzer was suspended for ten games <laughs> for using a foreign substance. Oh, uh, uh, hang. On. Uh, let's just be clear. Not a foreign substance. Not a foreign substance. Not a foreign substance. It was classified as a foreign substance, according to home plate umpire Dan Bellino, who was the umpire during the game of Scherzer's ejection, as well as Phil Cuzzy, who has been what, maybe the only umpire who has ejected players for sticky substances. I think, I think he literally is. Yeah. yeah, he's ejected three different players for substance violations. Uh they concluded that Scherzer's fingers were, quote, far stickier than anything they've felt so far this season. And in one ump's estimation, that's Bellino, stickier than he's felt in three years of checking. They went on to say that the substance that was on Scherzer's hands was so sticky that it stayed on their hands for multiple innings afterwards, according to them. Um, aside from the fact that this sounds like the way that police talk about fentanyl, <laughs> I guess I should back up and say for anybody who hasn't followed this, situation it was that uh scherzer was pitching uh, in a day game against the dodgers in los angeles he was warned after the second inning when he was leaving the mound that his hand was too sticky um he claimed 
that he was only using sweat and rosin, the rosin bag that was provided by Major League Baseball. He went back into the dugout. He washed his hands with alcohol as per MLB, as per the umpire's instructions, washed his hands off with alcohol. He says that um, an MLB official witnessed him do this. When he came back out for the third inning, his hand, according to the umpires, was sticky again. He said that he had used rosin and sweat and that it was just rosin and sweat and that he he cl- swore on his kids' lives that it was just rosin and sweat, which is just an absurd thing that has to be done that we're swearing on children's lives in post-game press conferences. And apparently the violation and what led to the suspension, even though there's like no scientific way to confirm what he was using, is that you're not allowed to use a rosin bag that's not on the mound. So even if you use the same exact style, the same exact kind of rosin, the same bag, whatever, MLB provided rosin that you happen to have in the dugout for whatever reason, that is a violation of the rules. And it was expressly laid out to them when they reset before the season. And they said that they would be enforcing these rules even more strict than they did last year when they implemented the hand checks. So even if he was using a perfectly legal legal substance, the fact that he had reapplied it in the dugout before coming back on the field and his hand was just as sticky again, that was what led to the suspension. But that's what Domingo Herman said he was doing like two weeks ago when the yeah. umpires were like, were like, you're going into the dugout and your hand is coming out sticky. And he was saying, oh, I'm just putting rosin on there. I'm doing it in the dugout, not on the mound. And they were like, oh, okay. Yep, exactly. And I guess they made an example of Scherzer. I guess Phil Cuzzy decided they just interpreted the rules differently. Exactly. And so like that is what is so confusing about this is that I don't really know what the rule is. Like I technically know the things that you're not supposed to do, but I, I knew the things that you were not supposed to do before, which is use spider tech. And they just allowed pitchers to use that for like seven years before they decided to arbitrarily crack down because hitters got upset or something. And, and it became a huge whole controversy last year. If, Yankees pitchers are doing it and it's okay and a Mets pitcher does it and it's not okay. Why is it being enforced differently? And is it simply because the umpires wanted to be red asses about this on this specific day? Because Scherzer is like not the type of person who takes to being chastised well on the mound or being disciplined on the mound. And he was arguing back and forth with them. It's just rosin. It's just rosin to the point where like, this is the thing that bothered me most about the situation Phil Cuzzy takes Scherzer's glove. He puts Scherzer's glove on his own hand. Yeah. And he's like, it's sticky inside there. And then he takes the glove back and he slams it in Scherzer's chest. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not even really being dramatic either. He literally slammed it into his chest. He didn't put it in back into Scherzer's hands. He slammed it into Scherzer's chest. And I'm like, first of all, you're taking your life in your own hands. Second of all, this is just incredibly incendiary childish behavior for umpires who are supposed to be there to like cool the situation down in theory, not like create a situation out of nothing that then leads to Scherzer being ejected and the Mets having to eviscerate their bullpen in the middle of a really long West coast road stand. Like there was a way for them to get around this exact thing happening. And I I guess you can say like, well, Scherzer should have followed the rules. Scherzer shouldn't have applied rosin in the dugout. If you believe what he's saying. Um, if you want to say that Scherzer is actually using spider tech or whatever, like that's you're free to conspiratorialize as much as you would like. Like, I don't really care. I don't I don't know enough to say that he's not like I don't know Max Scherzer personally. I would I would think that he's not because he's like a really smart guy and he's been warned about this a million times. And like he was warned about it in this game. So like he said, he would have to be the stupidest person ever. And I don't think he's 
the stupidest person ever to go back in the dugout, put more spider Known tech on, to be and come relatively, back out. relatively smart guy. smart guy. Yeah, and so whatever, that's fine. But the different interpretations of the rule between him and Domingo Herman, and the the rule saying that umpire, it's subjectively up to the umpires to decide what is too sticky and what is the right amount of tacky. Like, there's no confirmation process to a sticky stuff ejection. There's no, like, you give us your glove and we send it to a lab and we say, oh, this actually was rosin. There is a rule. It says in the policy that you can make your hand too sticky with rosin. But rosin is the legal substance and provided by MLB. So you can't overuse the rosin. So what is that? So am I allowed to toss the rosin bag up three times in my hand, but not five? Am I allowed to get sweat from my neck, but not from my hair? What is the rule, is my question. You, I'm really in theory, glad. have had over a year to think about what the rule is. I'm really glad that this is not a recent rule change, because this is like a rule change that I feel like is still having more of an impact on the actual like enjoyment of the sport for me than like any of the ones that were introduced this year. Which, again, your mileage may vary, but ultimately it's still the same game but like this is this is something that is actually impacting the game that you are watching on the field right max shows are getting ejected and suspended for 10 games that's one of the league's best pitchers on one of the league's marquee franchises and you're doing it because you felt like his hand was a little too sticky like that just ultimately it comes down to the umpire thought it was too sticky exactly the umpire didn't accuse him of using Spider tack. The right. umpire didn't say this was not rosin. The umpire said it just felt too sticky. Mm-hmm. And hey, maybe Phil Cuzzy's right. Maybe Phil Cuzzy is the only one who's right about this. And all of them are too sticky, right? But like, it just speaks to the fact that this is such a gray area and it doesn't seem like there's any consistency on how you apply this sort of thing, which again is why it would behoove Major League Baseball to actually set a standard for this is a substance that you can use on the ball. This is how much of it you can use. In theory, they've already done that with rosin, right? So I don't know why... It would behoove Major League Baseball to just get rid of all substances and make the ball tacky, but that would just be... Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I when When Scherzer went on the foul territory show a couple weeks ago and talked about this in the with regards to Domingo Herman's situation he kind of talked about how how sticky rosin can become when you're out there and you're sweating um and he and he brought up what i think is a salient point which is that the fact that all of this happens on the field after the pitcher comes off the mound i think creates even more of a scene that's really unnecessary when it comes to this right you really put the pitcher on the spot you you're effectively reprimanding him for something he may or may not have done on the field in front of however however many fans are at the ballpark and watching at home. And it just, I think it creates a a lot more drama than there really needs to to be, right? Because then you have this like confrontation that's taking place on the field that I think probably raises the stakes a lot and probably amps people up a little bit more. What I can't understand, like what I truly cannot square is how you can have a substance that's legal, but if you use too much of it, it's illegal. Yeah. Wrong substance, then. If rosin can become too sticky, too sticky, like, 
if rosin becomes more sticky, the more sweat you use, right? Which is true. Like in your experience, in my experience, like if you have some rosin on your hand and you wipe it with sweat, like that, that combination activates the rosin a little bit more and it makes it more sticky. And that's like as normal as normal gets in baseball. But like, so then it's a competitive advantage for a guy to be sweatier. Like this is just so silly. It's so unserious. And this is a serious game. You've made it into a serious thing. Like this, there's millions of dollars on the line. Not to mention there's like a billion dollars of sports bet sports betting money on the line, and you're just randomly ejecting the Mets best pitcher in the third inning of a game that you are fielding you are fielding monetary bets about the outcome of. So like the arbitrary enforcement of these rules has ripple effects that you're not really concerned about as a league. And I'm like, I'm not trying to be, I know it probably sounds like I have sour grapes because the Mets best pitcher is now suspended for 10 games, but it's like, it doesn't really matter to me that Scherzer is suspended for 10 games. Like for the, for the purposes of the New York Mets rotation. Like I think it's stupid and ridiculous, but if he had had a tired shoulder and missed 10 days, I, I wouldn't have like freaked out about that for the Mets chances of making the playoffs. So I'm not saying that like, wow, the whole season is ruined now. I'm just saying it's a clown show. It's a clown show is what it is. And and it's like, why are we so invested in something that is so randomly enforced? Like, so Scherzer went, not to mention the like labor implications of this, which are admittedly not like massive, but not irrelevant. Because Scherzer went on to say, you know, that he was going to appeal it and he was talking to different MLB officials or whatever, and his agent, Scott Boris, came out and said that we need to have a more universal standard rather than Phil Cuzzy's opinion. And I love when I love, love when I agree with Scott Boris. It's like the mm-hmm. best thing ever. Thank you, Labor yeah. King Scott Boris. But like, Scherzer can't appeal this to a neutral arbitrator because rules violations and enforcement are not part of the grievance and arbitration process. The, this rule violation is not part of the grievance and arbitration process in the collective bargaining agreement. And so Scherzer said if he would have appealed it, he would have appealed it in front of MLB's Rules Enforcement Commission. And the anonymous sources in the, in the Will Salmon article in The Athletic said that he would have a precisely 0% chance of winning this case. So it's like, okay. So they can just decide who to suspend. <laughs> Basically, whenever they want to. It's, I'm not trying to do like a bad faith slippery slope argument, but it is kind of a slippery slope of like, (laughs) you can suspend anybody based on, it just results in an automatic 10 game suspension based on what the umpire said. Not what the umpire like confiscated as evidence and turned in and was reviewed and enforced. It's just my word against the umpires. And knowing what we know about umpires, like, it's not exactly bulletproof what they say. <laughs> Ultimately, I think that if you want to hold your bro's hand, that's okay. You shouldn't have to say, sorry, dude, my, uh, y- your hand was so sticky that when my hand touched your hand, um, my hand accidentally stuck to your hand. You know, like just, just be you, be yourself. I, right. w- I want to hold Max Scherzer's hand. Me too. It's cool. It's okay. I saw Meredith Wills saying on Twitter, Meredith Wills, who has done irreplaceable research into the the baseball itself um, and has done a lot of reporting along with our friend Bradford Davis. 
about the baseball, I saw Meredith saying that the obvious solution to this would just be to create like a gravity test. You know, like you have an object that weighs a certain amount that the umpires carry with them and you put it, stick it on the pitcher's hand and you hold it. And if it sticks to the pitcher's hand and does not fall to the ground, their hand is too sticky. And if it does fall to the ground, then they're clear. That is like a quick scientific test that you could put into practice. Now, maybe Rob would be open to something like that. Maybe he wouldn't. But the fact that just someone on Twitter, granted, someone who's incredibly smart and whose opinion I value very, very highly, but just like for free is giving away ideas that are better than what we have now, (laughs) where supposedly this $12 billion industry is trying to come up with a solution to this sticky stuff situation. It's like Meredith Wills thought of that in like an hour. And yet Major League Baseball is still just taking the word of Phil Cuzzy feeling Max Scherzer's fingers. It's just like... Well, I should note, it also wasn't for free because Major League Baseball pays $1,000 a month to get their little gold check mark. So they actually... That cost them thousands of dollars to view that piece <laughs> of information. No, dude. Rob probably saw that one through his burner. That's actually true. His burner. Rob's burner is at A underscore Baisley on Twitter. That's Rob Manfred's uh-huh. burner account. So yeah. If you want to go give that one a follow. Okay. Final topic. Speaking of Rob, uh, Evan Drellick wrote an article in The Athletic this past week. Headline, Rob Manfred says MLB owners want to limit player contract lengths. Tony Clark says MLB PA won't approve. Tony Clark called the idea, quote, an assault on guaranteed contracts. <laughs> A reform that has been of interest to ownership for a number of years is a limitation of contract length, Manfred said Tuesday evening at Sports Business Journal's World Congress of Sports Conference. They've got to cut a couple words out of that in Los Angeles. Obviously, players love it. It gives them financial security for a very long period of time. The difficulty, and I think players will come to appreciate this as time goes by, those contracts result in a transfer from the current stars to yesterday's stars. At some point, I don't understand what he's saying. At some point, that has to be true, and I think it is an important. I think that is. I think it is an issue that is important for us to stay focused on because it creates inflexibility that affects the quality of the teams that you put on the field. That's convenient. Rob's uh, take is that we should have shorter contracts so that we can create more young stars. Mm-hmm. I'd love. Um, on that note, I would love contracts for uh, owners too. Can we put limitations <laughs> on that? As well, because I think that results in a, um, <laughs> I think that results in a transfer from the the current owner stars to to yesterday's ownership stars. That's so true. John Fisher, retire. Your time's your con- up. Your contract is up, John Fisher. That's a good idea, actually. You've been termed out. Every ten years, you have to review every owner. It's like I mean, like, why are we not doing this done anyway? A good thing for the franchise. Yeah. Uh, I just, no, this is ridiculous. This reminds me of last week when we talked about the Jim Bowden article where he was like, player opt-outs are ruining the league. It's like, well, perhaps the team shouldn't have agreed to that then. We're all trying to find the guy who signed the other side of the 12-year contract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just we keep seeing these contracts and it's only signed by Scott Boris and they just keep going into effect. I don't know. That other signature on there must be forged. Oh, wait, no. 
What you're telling me is that that other signature is from the owner who agreed to pay this contract <laughs> for this. that length? That's insane. Once again, free market for me, not for thee. Right? Like this is, I mean, yes. We could do, we could do an hour every week just on stuff that Rob Manfred says at conferences. Yes. What are we going to do if he's not commissioner anymore? <laughs> I really don't know. He's just a content machine. I wish that like, I wish there were like MLB like pool reporters who would send out like, you know how they send out like Eric Adams schedule for the day or here's Joe Biden's schedule for the, like, I want to know what conferences Manfred is at yeah. so I can show up outside if need be. But that then then they would be sharing his assassination coordinates. In real time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they would get banned from Twitter for that. I I I think that what Manfred is trying to say, right, is I'm that just like sorry, I'm laughing so much because I pictured Elon Musk quote tweeting Anthony DiComo, <laughs> sharing where quote tweeting Evan Drellick, sharing where Rob Manfred is going to be, like what conferences he's going to be, and just be like Elon Musk being like. Sorry, at Evan Drellick, your account is permanently banned for sharing the assassination coordinates of Rob Manfred. This is the woke elite doesn't want him to succeed. Yeah. The woke elite doesn't want him to talk to the business owners of the greater Atlanta sports, area sports conference. Business journal world sports conference congress. Sports. <laughs> it's just a bunch of buzzwords. <laughs> the Committee for Progress on the Business of Sports in Commerce. And weights and measures allegiance. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Luncheon. Forgot oh, yeah, the luncheon. Two luncheon sandwiches too. Yeah. Right. Every sandwiches. Maybe a little cheeky little coffee afterwards. Keep everybody awake. <laughs> I feel like what he's trying to say here when he says these contracts result in a transfer from the current stars to yesterday's stars, right? Is it like, well, there's so much money, right, that are be that are going to these players. And when you sign these long-term deals, that locks teams in. Right, and it means they've committed money to the stars of yesteryear as opposed to the current stars, and like that assumes that MLB revenues are not skyrocketing, that running a major league baseball franchise is not incredibly profitable, yeah, and that there's a salary cap, yeah, like like all of these things are are fine. That actually teams can still exist doing this. I love this recent trend of. Um... Rob saying all of the stuff that the owners want one year into the current CBA. Mm -hmm. It's just slowly trickling out all of the stuff that they asked for that had no chance of going through in the CBA. Just to try and just a little trial balloon for next CBA. Just like, here's everything we want. What if we had it? Open your third eye. What if the owners got everything they wanted? (laughs) A thing that we're favorable to is we want everything we want. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why his quotes sound insane like it's like I know well a, a structure that we're in favor of is having players make no money mm-hmm. okay yeah and I'm, I'm in favor of not working but being paid a million dollars a day like right. it's same thanks Rob come back to reality I love this notion that when he says it creates inflexibility on the field do you think that the the teams who are not competitive are the ones who are signing, who are like being pulled down by 10-year contracts? Do you think the reason the A's can't compete is that they're hamstrung they by like many having these too many good players on like <laughs> aged out contracts? Like I don't understand. The teams who are able to do this are the ones who can spend the money on it. So 
And they're the ones who are already ahead of the pack. So why is their inflexibility or whatever, so to speak? So you say an issue? Like, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make sense because this is actually something that Rob and the owners are actually good at. And I'm, I've after after making fun of them for the last five minutes, I'm just going to kind of like kind of tip my cap because that what they do is they identify a problem that existed like six years ago, you know, that was really at its peak like a few years ago that the lay fan still thinks is a problem in terms of actual competitiveness on the field. Like the players getting long contracts now are young and good and probably going to be good for the majority, if not all of that contract. Like what we're talking about now is like Machado, Harper, Trey Turner, Lindor, who's going to be like only like 39 at the end of his contract. Like these guys are going to add, they're going to have surplus value. And what he is talking about is Miguel Cabrera, Albert Pujols, Alex Rodriguez's second contract. Like these guys who before sort of like the onset of sabermetrics prevented teams from ever giving long contracts to people who they didn't think there was going to be some upside there. Back when there was just like the retain your star level of like quasi loyalty that existed in giving these long term extensions for players over 30. That is not really the case right now. Like over 30 players get like six or seven year contracts now, which is still long when it when compared to other sports, but is not like 13 years like Harper getting it when he's 26 or whatever. And he's going to be good for that whole contract for the most part. But he Rob knows this. And so, but Rob knows that if he's vague enough about it and he doesn't bring up any specific players, which would obviously be beyond the pale for him to name a specific player, but he knows that when he says that, there is a decent percentage of fans who are going to see this quote, hear this quote, and they're going to think of Cabrera and they're going to think of Albert Pools. They're not going to think of the current contracts that are not played out yet because there's so much that we don't know about those contracts yet. Like the smart people in the baseball world will point to those contracts and say, this is still a boon for the team. You and I last year were saying like these long contracts are probably actually going to end up being a deal for most of these teams, especially since when you factor in, you know, what Ben Clemens reported on at Fangrass, which is like they take all this money and they put it in escrow or whatever. They put it in a high yield uh, mutual fund and it they actually get more money at the end of this. It's like an investment more or less like it's all ridiculous. But Rob knows that the normal fan doesn't know any of that stuff. And so when he says this, he's triggering this this fear that they had like five years ago, knowing that that's not really the case anymore. And he's trying to get a a big win in collective bargaining agreements based on a fear that fans used to have, which has just been the playbook, basically. Like, they've been trying to get wins on salary caps since 1994, you know, because fans are still processing that trauma or whatever of the of the strike and not having the playoffs that year and he knows that that's a powerful thing and and he knows that that is like the best card that the owners have to play is more or less like fear-mongering over things that are myths i love how at this conference the person who asked the question about these long contracts is uh is peter goober who is part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers and Golden State Warriors. And he was like, uh, you know, one of, the, one, one of these students pointed out the long contracts with players. Um, it has an effect on players, teams, the league. Is there any thinking that there should be some outer limit to that? And I'm like, don't you have a direct line to this man? Like, why are you sitting in the audience at a conference? Like, I mean, I guess it's an opportunity to push him to kind of talk about this 
publicly and stake the owner's claim. But I just love this idea that it's all these owners and commissioners who are just chumming it up, just shooting the shit about yeah. the league, you know, knowing that they don't have to deal with the pressure of the public in this specific forum, right? They can actually speak candidly about what they think the future of their sport should look like. So like, I appreciate these moments, right? I appreciate all the luncheons and rotary clubs and and all the journalists who have their ears pressed to the door who can tell us what's uh, what's going on there because they speak more candidly there than I think anywhere else. I'm going to go to my boss on Monday. I'm just going to be like, a structure that I'm interested in is 10 hours of work per week. And I think that working 40 hours has severe limitations on the future value of my health and performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Alex, I think we've gone on sufficiently long enough so that we make this podcast very long, but that is okay because the rest of it is a very fun conversation with Mike Duncan about the Seattle Mariners and baseball history and many other fun things. Oh, as a note, this was recorded on Wednesday the 19th, so um, we didn't know about the A's yet. So when Mike and Alex are joking about the A's, it's not like incredibly mean. <laughs> Just let me cry a little bit longer. Okay, we now have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Mike Duncan, historian, podcaster, host of the incomparable podcast, History of Rome and Revolutions, author of Hero of Two Worlds. Mike, thank you for joining Tipping Pitches. Uh, thank you very much for having me, guys. Uh, Mike, we're really excited to talk to you about a lot of things. The Mariners, baseball in 2023, baseball history. But you're really here for one reason, and that reason is to answer the very important question. Do you think the painting of Alex Rodriguez as a centaur exists? It seems like it maybe did exist. Uh, it might not exist now. That's an awfully specific thing to make up about somebody. Um, right. So if it was like an awfully specific thing, then hats off. Because I think it was was it was like an ex girlfriend, right? Yes. Who oh, yeah. is is the one who said that? And like it's it's one of two things. Either it's real and that's great. I doubt he has it anymore. But if that's just like sort of this weird revenge thing that she did, that's an awesome way to get revenge on somebody to say that they have a half man half centaur painting of themselves in their own house that sort of takes her like my hat's off to her creativity basically <laughs> i know i feel my brain working itself into this, this position where it's like oh, but even if it's not real the fact that it could be real says a lot about our society you know sure yes 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 it says it says a lot about a rod that none of us are like oh, that's impossible you know like does like does mike trout have a painting of himself you know as a centaur no of course not that doesn't that doesn't track but alex rodriguez yeah, yeah, that scans. <laughs> uh, Mike Trout, although he has his own weird little quirks, you know, like how he was a super pretzel spokesperson for years and years into his career because he just loves super pretzels. So he was like yeah. in those commercials. And it's just like, that's very Mike Trout core. Just like, yeah, I, b- I believe that Mike Trout likes pretzels. For exactly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's a very pretzel liking type of personality. Um, <laughs> Mike, you're here. I'm, 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 Obviously, joking, jokingly asking you a very specific question to start this conversation, but you're here because we saw you tweeting about that, and we were like, as the we consider ourselves the historians of Alex Rodriguez as a pop cultural figure, and so once oh, we saw okay. you, 
um, a noted historian much more seriously than us, talking about A-Rod, we felt like this was a great opportunity to get you on a podcast to talk about baseball, which seemingly you have a loving relationship to. Yeah, yeah. I am I'm a diehard baseball fan. I'm a diehard Mariner fan. I am a diehard Alex Rodriguez apologist, ultimately, at this That's point. Right. Um, and I, I will, I will caveat this by saying that like, I don't really watch national broadcasts of baseball games anymore. Like even if I'm watching, you know, like Cardinals rays, like I'm listening to the local broadcast. So I don't, none of this speaks to Alex Rodriguez as a analyst or baseball or like a color man, which apparently he started off great and then really collapsed into, yeah. Or I guess clap up his own ass. Um, maybe is what happened to him. Um, but look, I am a, uh, you know, I'm a Mariners fan from the eighties, you know, like I started going to games in 85 and, you know, I got the first six years of Alex Rodriguez's career, you know, Alex Rodriguez is a 20 year old, 21 year old, 22 year old. Like, so we loved him. And then there, there is a segment of the Mariners fan base, of course, that still like boos him when he comes to town, um, which I really, I have not understood Really, since about May of 2001, I have not understood how you could continue to be mad at Alex Rodriguez for taking a quarter of a billion dollars to go to someplace else and play baseball while the Mariners, like, because my big thing in 2000 was that we made the playoffs in 2000. We made it to the ALCS and we lost to the Yankees. And then A Rod left. And I was very briefly upset about this because he was very. At that moment, you know, the best shortstop in baseball, probably the best player in baseball, full stop, because this is right before Pujols comes into the league, and probably the best shortstop of all time. I think I would put him as my as my starting shortstop of any all-time team. And uh, and so him leaving takes this team that barely makes the playoffs and probably makes them mediocre again. And instead, like what happened in 2001 is April of 2001, the Mariners went like 20 and two. And then in May we went like 24 and three and like by, by the all-star break, we, we had barely lo- had double digit losses. Um, and people were trying to boo Alex when he came back. It's just like, dude, who cares? We rule. Like <laughs> we have Ichiro, we have Brett Boone who, you know, was obviously on, on a massive, co- on a massive <laughs> cocktail of, um, of steroids. <laughs> But it was so fun to watch. And like that season was so great that like I got over the A-Rod thing a long time ago. And I'm I'm of the part of the fan base uh, that thinks that the Mariners are doing a real disservice to themselves and, and to all of us by not putting him in the Mariners Hall of Fame. Because he's he's like, he played there for six years. He's like fourth on the all-time war list, <laughs> right? Like that's how good he was for us. Uh, oh my God. I can't, I, I sports fans just need to have shorter memories. You know, like it's not that, serious if the player left 15 years ago um how are you how are you feeling about the mariners this year are you do you think that that magic is like recaptured are they back on the come up like what is your kind of perspective on it right now and do they have an a-rod equivalent character who you think can can lead them um uh, as he, maybe, as he did maybe a player whose name starts with a J and ends with an O, you know, <laughs> right. like oh. spitballing. I don't know. Similar yeah. Last yeah. Name. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Here's a, here's a, here's a softball question. Are there any players who you think are, are great on the team right now? Right. Um, wh- where I am right this moment is that we are kind of, hmm, I'm, I'm holding my breath a little bit. Um, the season didn't get off to like the most spectacular start um, 2021 and 2022 were both fueled a lot by 
magic pixie dusk. Um, you know, 2021, we almost made the playoffs with a negative 50 run differential, which was, you know, as fun as fun can be, uh, <laughs> but not actually something that's sustainable. And so there were, there were things that, um, that have, that happened last year and over the winter that made me hopeful, right. Tasker Hernandez, um, uh, coming on and, uh, uh, things like that, but there's lots of like, who's our you know, who's our left fielder, you know, who's um, our DH is the real question who's right now. Our DH? Yeah, exactly. Like who, why do we like, can we just go get Nelson Cruz again, please? Like <laughs> that's all, all I want is for Nelson Cruz to come back and hit more bombs. Um, and then like Robbie Ray went down on like the 12th pitch of the season effectively, which is like he, you know, Robbie Ray is never going to be his Cy Young self again, but like reliable quality starts for 175, 200 innings. Like that's like, a super valuable component of a team that's trying to be in that wild card hunt. Um, so in the in the big picture, I'm ultimately disappointed the Mariners are not better than they should be and could be, but given their market, given how much wealth is in the Pacific Northwest, given how they should be able to be, they should be able to hire the smartest people to run that team. And it just doesn't seem like that's of interest to them. So big picture, it's like a little disappointing, but I do um you know, I'm watching the games like we're losing to the Brewers right now. Um, and I would, uh, I hope they make the playoffs, but I could very easily see them not. Um, yeah. Making the playoffs. We, um, we did a, like a, like a survey of our listeners who are in like our Slack channel of, of our community here of our patrons. And they chose Julio as the player that they, I guess, how, how was it phrased, Alex? Like it was like the best vibes of any player in 2022 right. yeah. and Julio kind of won in sort of a landslide. And so, Mike, as a fan of the Mariners, and also the Mariners being this franchise that has had various sort of like cult of personality type players, like whether that is A-Rod and, of course, Griffey before that. Like, is Julio in your sports life the biggest thing since Griffey? Um, not necessarily since Griffey, but he's he. we want him in that pantheon. Um, because, like, for a Mariners fan specifically, like, it's Griffey, it's Ichiro. Uh, you know, Felix, Felix means a lot. Felix yeah. means a lot to all of us. Um, and th- and then there are other guys who are sprinkled in there. Like I'm, you know, I think Randy Johnson was the greatest left-hand pitcher of all time. We had him, we had Edgar, we had Alex. But in that sort of like uh, uh, franchise-defining face th- th- who's going to have a Hall of Fame career, uh, yeah, that's what I want for Julio. And certainly he's he's the most excited that I have been about a position player since Ichiro probably came on board. Um, you know, like I like I enjoyed Robinson Cano on the team. I do. I love Robinson Cano. And I enjoyed Nelson Cruz and I love Kyle Seeger. But like none of those guys, when we were getting them and when they were on the team, were like, this guy is so young and so good and so fun and such a great... He, I mean, like Julio just seems like a great guy, you know, like on top of everything else, which is like yeah. a terrible thing to sort of rest your hat on because nobody knows anybody is right. surrounded by PR. Um, but he genuinely seems to be that sort of like ebullient, you know, figure who's, who has brought a lot of fun and enthusiasm uh, uh, to the team. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm an ace fan, um, uh, which is not something I admit to, to very many oh, people. So, <laughs> so, you, so you maybe, you maybe don't like Felix as much as we do. Cause like before uh, he got on, Alex turned to me and he goes, so I turned on the A's last night and, um, Tyler Wade was hitting cleanup and that was bleak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for you, man. Like that, you know, 
The Oakland A's of all the AL West teams, they've always been the AL West team that I've disliked the least. So yeah, yeah. well, I I, what I was going to say I feel very similarly about the the Mariners, who I think are often often very overlooked up in the Pacific Northwest, despite the fact that it's kind of remarkable when you think about they've had like again like we were just talking about four or five of the best players of this generation or like the last generation of two right within the last. 20 years, which is not actually something that many franchises can say. They've had Griffey, they've had A-Rod, they've had Ichiro, Randy Johnson, right, and Julio coming up. That's quite a resume. Like, you're doing something right there to the point where it kind of makes you wonder, why why can't you just do... Why can't you do more of that? Is there another Julio out there that, that the, you can this, find? This, this is what I do not understand. Um, and it, it does have something to do, I think, with the culture of the Mariners as a franchise and their, like, their front office. Um, like why we can't put things together on top of this thing that I have, which is like when, I, when people ask me about how you know, like, painful it is to be a Mariners fan – you know, it, uh, some of some of what I'm about to say is pure and obvious cope, right? And I do understand that <laughs> because you know we've never even been to the World Series. I, we're the only franchise left that has not ever been to the World Series, um, and so it has been in that sense, um, you know, just decades and decades of failure. But when I think about the guys who have worn the uniform and who have played for my baseball team in doing what baseball actually is, which is a daily activity to throw right. it on in the background, like. Yeah, like I was nine years old and Ken Griffey Jr. got dropped on my team and I watched him play. He would get three or four at bats like every day of my childhood. I uh, Griffey was on my team. And the same is true for Ichiro and Randy Johnson and Edgar. And then, you know, even the Robinson Cano, Nelson Cruz, Kyle Seeger years, like those, they were great. You know, that that was as good for, for those people do not understand this, but for a couple of years, that them hitting three, four, five was as good a three, four, five as existed in the league. It's just, you know, if the hitting is good, the pitching is bad. And if the pitching is great, the hitting is bad. And that just seems to be, we can't ever quite put it all together except in 2001, um, which then, you know, that that's the one that like that one actually hurts. But right. the, re- the rest of it is just like, I don't know. It's, it hasn't been a bad baseball life for me. I, I've rooted for some great players. Um, and I just, I wish we could have gotten more out of it. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. You sound like what I try to convince myself that I feel being a Mets fan like but it's just so much bleaker over here on this side of the country like we try to take we try to take the joy in certain things and I feel that way about like a guy like Pete Alonso or a guy like Francisco Lindor or in previous eras David Wright but it just always Rob, feels Robinson like, Robinson Cano Robinson Cano legendary legendary New York legendary New York Robinson Met. Cano um, <laughs> but like it, there's just like a feeling of fatalism that I don't necessarily feel from the Mariners fans. Is that true? Or is that just me being on the outside looking in? Like, it just feels like there's an a, ability to like be optimistic about certain things with that fan base. I I think we're just like a little bit more laid back about the whole thing. I I do think yeah. that that's a little bit true. less annoying than us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mets, Mets fans like really love to wallow in their own misery. And you're yeah. like, you know, you guys have often done quite well. Yourselves. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but you know, li- living in living in the shadow of the Yankees is, you know, is going to give Mets fans a huge um, you know, inferiority complex. And then I think the team really, like, especially like over the last decade, j- j- was just so dysfunctional, you know, from from the from the very tippy top all the way down. It just seemed like a completely dysfunctional um 
uh, organization. Whereas the the Mariners, like the Mariners, have this vibe. I said, I said, I wrote a baseball prospectus thing uh, about the 2021 season, and I described the Mariners as like just this never-ending corporate retreat. Like that, that's what <laughs> sort of the executives think of it. Like it's like the team is a backdrop for their various corporate junkets, and right. that's kind Luncheons. of luncheons. Yeah, exactly. Rotary club meetings. That's yeah. yeah, That's what. That's mostly what they're getting out of this is kind of like being like low key aristocracy in the Pacific Northwest, um, (laughs) and like hobnobbing with chambers of commerce. um, Which is, I would, I, I want somebody psychotic with a billions, billions of dollars to buy my my baseball team, um, but it's not going to happen. And and I think just like the years of never even getting quite close except for you know 2000 2001 and you know 95 was obviously magical for us yeah. but the rest of it like you know Red Sox fans before everything happened and Mets fans and and Cubs fans before they won you know it was a lot of just like getting getting to someplace and then losing tragically which the Mar- we don't we don't really have that kind of record um it's just the the Mariners are a fun team to watch because some of the players are fun in between advertisements for like local plumbers, right? That's Mariners baseball. I mean, if you never had any hope to begin with, you you can't lose it, right? Yeah, I mean, exa- that's, exactly. That's the upshot. Yeah, I I was certainly not raised on a team where my expectations were high. Right. I'm still I'm still annoyed. I have to like sit next to people if like <laughs> if, if if it's like a good game because like we would go we would go to games when I was a kid in the eighties. And like literally have like the entire right field bleachers to ourselves. The dream. Um, yeah. It was great. Just cheap hot, just cheap hot dogs. And and they were they were they were like bench, they were it was like high school. Um yeah, like, it was like wooden, wooden painted like, benches. Yeah. They they were aluminum. No, no, no. So oh, okay. it was it was like it was like football, like high school football stadium. Right. Okay. Is, is what it was in the kingdom, which is this this like huge concrete dome with like plastic yeah. grass and you know, the whole thing like the yeah. Yankees still have the aluminum benches, which is maybe one of the only cool things left about the New York Yankees and their stadium. But they still have the the bleachers out there that are actual bleachers. Out I, in don't the think, I don't think I don't think I I don't think I, I've only been there. One, I'm going to go again in May. I'm actually um, I'm getting tickets to I'm going to be in New York in May and I'm I'm going to see him again. Um, I never made it to the old stadium, but I don't Me think I, I don't think I remember. Yeah. Regrettably, it is a cool place to see a baseball game sometimes when you sit out there in the bleachers. Like Alex and I have been there when it's like a little bit less fun and a little bit more bleak, and you're kind of like with like the Staten Island, like college age bros who are like spilling beer on you. But then from time to time, if you get the right crowd around you, it can be really fun. You do bake out there in the sun, though. I will say. Yeah. Yeah. The, la- the, la- the, one, the one game I went to out there, I wound up uh, chatting with some people that were just sitting in front of us that were perfectly nice people. <laughs> um it I should I should note it's easier when you're not wearing the opposing team's jersey. Um yeah. and I have learned that lesson the hard way. Uh see times. I did, see that and that's the thing is man, I like speaking of like cultural icon stuff, like I have like the, the Mariners hat that I wear around is the the Mariners hat with the teal brim, right? Yep. Like that sort of like classic old hat. Yeah. And like when I go, I I just wear that hat wherever. Um, and when I go to other stadiums, I continue to wear that hat and it's not, I get nothing but like, like glowing, like glowing smiles, like hive, like, yeah, man, that's the hat. Like we love, we love those guys. We love that team. Um, so it is a nice thing about being a Mariners fan that like kind of our vibe, no, nobody really hates the Mariners, right? There's no, there's nobody out. And, and even a lot of people like my age, um, who grew up on whatever team they were rooting for 
plus the existence of Ken Griffey Jr. Exactly. means that the means that lots of people out there, like their second favorite team, turns out to be the Mariners. Yeah. And also, I, I I mean, the Yankees are kind of like the central point for a lot of opposing fan bases where you can all kind of agree in the fact that you hate the Yankees. But I Correct. think Ken Griffey Jr. coming out so staunchly against the Yankees and saying he would never play there made <laughs> yeah. him and the Mariners just beloved to so many different franchises. That's, yep, that's a... A, a clip I'll watch at least once a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the uh, with the Mariners City Connect uh, jerseys coming out in a couple of weeks, what do you uh, what do you want to see them incorporate? Like, um, like, do you want go back to like the the turn forward the clock jerseys that they did like oh, a couple decades sweet. ago? Those were amazing. Just, uh, a beautiful, my- <laughs> a beautiful car crash of a jersey. Just, yeah, just I mean, gorgeous. what they really need to do is have everybody wear their hats backwards like that's 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 the thing that is great that's that's the thing i would like to see him do in terms of like what kind of defines this but other than that i mean those city connect jerseys that's like wow that's when you talk to the guys at the chamber of commerce like what do you want it's like like put an amazon (laughs) logo on it you know is that city connect like i don't know those jerseys aren't like my favorite Oh, absolutely! I don't know if you—I don't know if you saw the Rangers ones that that Those came out a couple of weeks ago. Tough but to I'm look just, at. They are a tough hand. No, no, I I really did not. I didn't pay attention to it at all. <laughs> You're better for it. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, Google it as soon as we're done talking. Right, right, right. What was it like when they broke the uh, streak last year? Made made it to the playoffs. What was that like for you? Phenomenal, honestly. Because <laughs> um, twenty 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 one was was hard. Uh, that that one was actually hard. That was that was the because the, they were good in 2014 and 2016 and 2018, um, and we we fell short. 20, 2016 was the last one that kind of broke my heart, and 2021 was hard because they got so close for no good reason, no yep. good reason at all. Like it, like the negative 51 run differential, um, which. I don't know if this made it out into the wider baseball world, but we all referred to it as the fun differential. Yes. Um, okay. I, I think that made it out there, but uh, getting that close and falling short, it's just the not making the playoffs thing was mostly just like an irritation. Um, it did. It wasn't, it, there wasn't a lot of pain involved with it anymore. It was just like, I want to just stop having this be a thing that I have to repeat about my team. Can they just make the playoffs? And so when they didn't do it in 2021, I was like, God, friggin'. Mm. And then they do do it in 2022. And then not only that, but went to Toronto and we got our weekend in Toronto, um, which immediately, you know, that weekend in Toronto is instantly like a top 10, maybe even top five sort of set of moments for the franchise. And so if they had just like sort of made it and then fallen on their faces, I, I think I would ultimately have just been like, it barely even counts. But the fact that they did be, and if there's any Blue Jays fans out there, a much better Blue Jays team than us, right? Like I, we <laughs> yeah. do get that, right? But we got Luis Castillo now. So that's cool. Um, and uh, uh, so that weekend in Toronto was was really, really special. And then, you know, of course we went to... Play the Astros, and that went less well. That went As kind of the way from, that from, yeah. for most teams, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I still have not seen the home run that Jordan Alvarez hit fall. Um, <laughs> I was, I was, wa- I was watching that game while making dinner in my kitchen on my laptop, and I was 
you know, I, w- I was I was probably actually like burning dinner at this point because I was just pacing around the kitchen <laughs> and then like hands on my knees, you know, watching this game. And then as soon as he hit breath. it, I, as yeah. Soon, as, yeah, exactly. And as soon as he hit it, I closed my laptop and still I have not seen the ball come down. I've never seen him round the bases. I don't know. I have no visual memory of their celebration because I just closed the laptop and was like, well, that's sucks that's what we call protecting your peace as yeah. a baseball yeah. fan right there. yeah Just do, doing what you need to do if an but, astro uh, if the astros win the series and no one's around to actually watch it did they yeah. win and luckily though uh i do actually love jordan alvarez a lot i think he's just a sensational player and i think he's great for baseball and i think that a guy like that having a moment like that um you know, burnishing his, his own resume and his legend and like everything that he's bringing to the game to have him go out there and club something that dramatic is like kind of objectively great for baseball. It just sucks. That it came against it my team on like the other that. End of it. Yeah, it, yeah, it really, it really, really sucks to be on the other end of it. But if it was anybody on that team, he's the one who I'm glad it was. Like if it had, if it had been, you know, Altuve or like Bregman or something, I would have been deeply, God, deeply, yeah. deeply annoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jordan Alvarez is just like, yeah, man, go do it, dude. Like, great. Just, he just goes out there and he crushes. And he's, he's just not involved in the 2017 stuff at all. And it's just, yep. it's hard to not like that guy. And like that, and that series too, they were like, like it was like the first time his parents like had watched him play Major League Baseball because like the State Department got involved in bringing right. him, yeah. bringing them over. And so it's just like the whole thing is like, what am I going to do? Like be mad that Jordan Alvarez hit a home run to win a game in front of his mom? Like, right. It would be really funny. I'm not, I'm not mad at him for that. It'd be really funny if you cut the other direction. You were just like, nah, F that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Send him back. <laughs> uh Mike, a, a soft pivot here. I wanted to talk to you about, as as the historian that you are, I wanted to talk a little bit about baseball and its relationship to its own history and um, like its myth making and its archiving. Um, like, what do you think it is about baseball that makes us as fans, as like the stewards of the game, like be so obsessed with its relationship to its own history and like romanticizing it as a as a pop cultural item? I wish I actually had a good answer to this. Um, It's not something I've never thought about before, Um, but it's very clear that baseball of all the sports um, is obsessed with its own past and loves its own past. And as a, as a, as a historian myself, if I, you know, can, you know, lay credit or lay claim to that title, you know, I'm as interested in baseball history as I am in any particular season that I happen to be watching. Um, so I don't know exactly what it is or like why soccer doesn't sort of operate the same way. But like when I got, I got really, really into soccer like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though soccer has this like amazing history and people like Pele and Maradona, you talk about them, there really does seem to be this thing that like soccer really doesn't exist before the 1990s, especially like if you're talking about like the premier league, they just, they're like, nothing matters before the premier league became a thing practically. Um, and in baseball, you know, I, I can almost guarantee you that what I said earlier about putting Alex Rodriguez on as the starting shortstop of my all-time team, there's going to be somebody who comes in and goes like, I can't believe he wouldn't put Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner. like 1913. To make a Honus Wagner joke. Like it did cross my mind. Luckily, luckily Keith Olbermann does not listen to this podcast. We know of not yet. He doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that we still take seriously the accomplishments of Ty Cobb and, um, 
you know, and Hannes Wagner and Eddie Collins and those guys. And, and, you know, that's a, it's a weird quirk of it. And you could say like, okay, well, it was the national pastime and it was so much a part of American culture for like 50 years that we do, you know, we do look back on it as something that was continues to be important and inform what it means to be a fan. But like, basketball, football, soccer, even golf these days, like golf is kind of like, you know, you talk about Jack Nicholas or an old Palmer, but like, mm, it's not really like people are not talking about like seventies golfers with great reverence anymore. Um, yeah. so I don't, I don't actually know exactly what it is about the sport, um, that allows for this sort of thing. I could speculate wildly. Um, but not most of the things that you would say, seem to also apply to other sports like oh well you know we've been accumulating all these records and like that has something to do with it but like every sport has records um so why do we care so much about it i don't know so it's it's very possible that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we love baseball history because loving baseball means loving baseball history and i'm not sure it it gets more complicated than that yeah i mean i think that's a really astute point i mean something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is the idea of baseball is it sort of, um, I mean, again, this, you know, century plus long history, you can actually really sort of use it to trace the broader contours of kind of American culture, right, and society. And it's really inter- interesting to see the way that it sort of interfaces with the outside world at various points throughout the years, right? I think especially back to kind of the the late 1960s when there's the civil rights movement and and baseball is kind of this um i don't know you're sort of seeing that dynamic play out on the the field in real time um is there say you were to do a a podcast about the history of baseball or whatever is there i've never thought about doing that so which I i'm sure you've never I've, ne- I've never even considered the possibility <laughs> no, of doing not, baseball <laughs> no. not at all <laughs> i'm not sure what i'll be able to say here right um is there an era or or two or whatever that you're kind of particularly drawn to that you think that there are some really sort of interesting strands that can be kind of pulled at i think every generation of baseball is interesting in its own way um, and if I were to do this, I think baseball is d- divisible into about six or seven distinct eras um, that you can point to because like, you know, baseball in the Garden of Eden, you know, era of yeah. the 18, you know, 60s, 1870s, 1880s, that's, that stuff is fascinating. Those guys are maniacs. Yeah. Um, the, the characters in those days are great, but also like, you know, immediate post-war, you know, integration baseball is the most one of the most important things that's happening in American history, full stop at that moment, the integration of baseball was, you know, what would the what the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum posits, and I think that they're probably right, is that Jackie Robinson is the beginning of the civil rights movement um that you can pinpoint that. So that's fascinating. um i the the crazy days of Astroturf and um, you know, everybody wearing polyester and stealing a million bases um. You know, the 1970s and early 80s, that stuff is all great. I think baseball today, as of this moment, is good. The last yeah. five years, I was, and I know you guys have declared a moratorium on on talking about the rules, which I think is great. But Well, the I think rule, the moratorium the, is only for you and me. So if you would like to wax poetic no, yourself, no, we just can't I, 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 don't, I don't have anything new to say, except that it's great, it's overdue, and I can't believe that Major League Baseball actually did the right thing here. Um, but that that's the most shocking thing of all. Um, so for the first, so this season, you know, this is the first time that I've seriously considered 
putting sort of like social capital on the line to try to talk somebody into becoming a baseball fan, <laughs> which I had, which I haven't done for like 10 years. I would on like, honest to God, like people would say like, you're a baseball fan. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I love baseball. I, you know, it's, it's this great thing in my life. And they're like, well, should I get into baseball? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> I, I don't know that I can really want to talk somebody into watching this particular version of the game, which was very slow. There wasn't a lot going on. Um, and was increasingly frustrating even to me as a great baseball lover um, to watch. So, I mean, to answer your big question, it's like, you know, every, every 30 years or so, you can kind of put brackets around a particular era. And every single one of them has interesting people, interesting dynamics, uh, interesting styles of play, um, new equipment, new places players are coming from. You know, um, and so no, none, none could really stand above any of the others. Um, you know, when the Mariners win the World Series, I'll say that's the era that baseball was the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, what you said there about like being able to sell the game to one of your friends who's asking you about it, who's not a big baseball fan. Like Alex and I encounter that all the time because we are huge baseball fans, but we went like to, to a college, frankly, where there wasn't a lot of other people who were into sports. Like we went to NYU, a lot of people were into like arts and movies and stuff like that. But not a, there was, of course, other baseball fans there, but we weren't like constantly surrounded by people who were super into baseball. And so when our friends would ask us about this or like as our friend group, we were trying to convince them to come to games with us. We would always try to sell like that in-person experience of baseball, like that community vibe of actually what you were describing, Mike, like your childhood sitting sitting around in the bleachers and just being able to watch the game and have a place to be and develop the relationship over time like that. But honestly, over the last five or 10 years, like you're saying, like that part of it has become harder too, because they've just made games harder to get to because of the price of it um, and the way that they've corporatized the game. And so while I'm encouraged by like some of the rule changes, I think that part of what the part of the reason that we've been less interested in talking about the rule changes, frankly, is because like, that improves the TV product, but also we need to get back to the point where we can let people go and have that in-person experience too, because that is what makes a lifetime baseball fan is being I, able to be at the ballpark and be around the game and immersed in it. Yeah. And baseball is meant to be a, uh, uh, you know, it's a daily game, right? It's meant to, it's meant to be kind of background for our lives. And it, ideally, if you were a baseball fan and really got into it, you should feel comfortable going to seven, 10 games a year, you know, because they, there's so many of them, but like, it's a Tuesday night, let's go see a game. But if you, if you pat, if you make the price package of going to see a baseball game, just like one random baseball game, not dissimilar from like a football game, then like, what are we doing here? You you need to make it so that people can just be like, let's just go, you know, let, let's just, you know, we're yeah. not doing anything else today. Let's just go catch a game, um, spend 15 bucks, you know, 10, 15 bucks to get a ticket, um, spend a little bit on concessions, but not, you know, through, not through the roof and get in and get out and enjoy yourself. And that's, that was my experience growing up. Uh, these days I, you know, I took my kids to one game last year one major league game i went to a couple more myself i'm actually going to take my son this year i'm uh i live in the midwest now and all of the midwest stadiums i've never been to and so in august i actually plotted out a thing that's going to take me like from kansas city to pittsburgh and back nice. and i'm gonna, I'm going to check off like seven stadiums but kansas i'm already city. kansas city is awesome so i'm i'm doing the math right now and just like God, how am i going to get out of this without like you know, breaking the bank, but I, I'm also trying to give my son like 
that kind of because he's 10 right now. Yeah. Um, and he and he will be 11 and he loves baseball. He, he loves so funny. Like speaking of Julio, um, my son's favorite player is Juan Soto because nice. he's because he's a bright kid. Right. I'm like, what, a, what great, what, what, what absolutely fantastic choice, man. Like just nothing but validation. And then the home run derby last year happens and he's like, dad, I'm going to root for Juan Soto. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> come on. Uh, but yeah, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. It's, it's too expensive to go see games, which too I damn. With. Yeah. The prices it's are too damn. damn. Yeah. And in Seattle, there's, uh, there were these great, um, sort of like standing room only like, uh, um, sort of out in left field and in center field where you could just kind of get beer and gather with people. So like you could buy tickets to different places. And like, if you had friends there, you could kind of gather there and they've do, they've roped all that off for yeah. again, the, the never ending corporate retreat. Yeah. Um, so like you get to, you get to go to those places if you're now linked to a corporation, which wasn't true three, four years ago, you could just go hang out there. Um, which is all very annoying. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it feels like every couple of years, right, there's a conversation, an existential conversation about, you know, the future of baseball, right? And is baseball dying? And, and you know, what's going to happen five or ten years from now? And and I generally don't give very much value to those because I think that baseball is fine and doing well. And if you watch a game, it's a very exciting product. But if there is one thing that feels like a barrier to kind of growth in the future, it is this exact thing, right? Is like, how can you actually get people in the ballpark? Like mm-hmm. that, it's not like, uh, you know, people are any less interested in baseball, I don't think, than they were, or any less disposed to being interested in baseball than yeah. they were 20 years ago, right? It's just that, why why would they participate in that right now? Especially with more and more competition from forms of entertainment, you got to like, you got to put something out there that people want to engage with, right? In, yeah. in like an actually accessible, affordable way. And again, especially when there's literally, like your home team is playing a game 82 times, you know, it, you should be able to just kind of drop in and catch a game and have the ownership group be like, yeah, we'd rather have your 15 bucks and fill the stadium and create a good vibe than just doing our like aggressive corporate strategy, which it was, it was, it was like 10, 15 years ago now that the, they accidentally, you know, the, the guy, uh, uh, the guy with the angels did a Kinsey. Do you guys know what a Kinsey gaff is? No. Does that phrase mean anything to you? So Kinsey Gaff, it's named after Michael Kinsley, um, who was a political reporter, uh, writer in, in D.C. for a long time. And a Kinsey Gaff is when a politician accidentally tells the truth. <laughs> and so there's uh, there was a Kinsey Gaff like 15 years ago, a guy with the Angels who was like, oh, yeah, the whole point is to get uh, get fewer. We'll, we'll do fewer fans as long as they're richer. Right. So like the the ideal scenario for a lot of these owners is to have like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos be the only two people in the stadium, but they paid $5 million for their tickets and they're paying $10,000 a beer. And like, that's, that's the ideal for a lot of like the ownership and like the sort of the, the business side of the franchises rather than like a more kind of like Bill Vec style of ownership, which is like, let's, let's create like a rowdy, awesome, you know, environment for the team and have that atmosphere be the fun part of it. Um, which I don't think paying $25 for a crab sandwich is what I'm looking for when I go to a baseball game. See on tipping pitches. It wasn't even that it wasn't even that good. Yeah, it wasn't even that good. <laughs> See on tipping pitches, we don't call that a Kinsey gaff. We call that a Manfred moment because he seems oh, to find okay. himself doing that quite often these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Manfred. We could use an we could use a new commissioner, but like, you know, what are we 
all the commissioners have been bad, basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the job. The job is to be oppositional to everybody right. yeah. except the owners. You know, like yep. um, Mike. We want to let you get out of here, but uh, I did want to ask you before you go. Uh, we were joking in the, in the Twitter DMs about your your famous um, bit from History of Rome about Aurelian as Sandy Koufax. Oh, sure. So uh, you you dug up your your spreadsheet or your file of all of the comparisons that you did for every Roman emperor. I, w- I yeah. wondered if you wanted to give like an updated version of that or, or resurface that. Or Alex was wondering if there is a Rob Manfred Roman emperor that you could relate him to. Um, I, I would have to think about it harder. Uh, right. I, th- this is something I did like 10 years ago. So pre-Manfred. Uh, Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is this is pre this is pre a lot of things. So so anything that's that's in this. But for those for the uninitiated, uh, in the history of Rome, uh, there was an emperor named Aurelian, who you know was was emperor for a very brief period for five years before he was assassinated. But what he accomplished in those five years was actually like of world historical importance. Like he is the pivot of the Roman Empire is about to fall in the third century and they pivot kind of back to life on their way to Constantine and the Christianization of the empire. And so I said if that he's basically the Sandy Koufax of emperors <laughs> because he was only around for five years, but man, those, what a, <laughs> what a peak, you know, and he's never, he's never going to show up on the list of greatest emperors of all time. That's always like Augustus and Diocletian and Constantine guys who, right. You know the the Ustremskis of the world who play they amassed a, more war over right. there. Their exactly. They, yeah, they're 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 wins. They're, uh, you know, but they're <laughs> but they're wins above average. You know, maybe right. maybe sometimes right. pedestrian, but their wins above replacement quite high. Whereas Koufax and Aurelian were were really really high. So, you know, so some of this is not like um, uh, you know, the most you know surprising stuff. Like who's Julius Caesar? He's Willie Mays. Mm. Um, because mm. just good at everything, like the best at everything. Um, who's Augustus? He's Babe Ruth. But then, like I said, like, so Nero, right? We all know Nero, famously, you know, a teenage emperor. Um, Joe West, umpire Joe West. <laughs> wow. And, I, and I, I wrote here why I wrote an overly sensitive, childish egomaniac who just makes everything worse and also fancies himself a great musician. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. So that's pretty perfect. That's the um, I gotta tip the cap for that one. That's yep. we we yeah, love Joe yeah, West yeah. here. We've talked quite a bit about him. We've actually done a full review of his um not released on streaming musical <laughs> album. So yeah, yeah, we've spent a lot of time talking about Joe. Like what uh what else do I have here? Oh, um oh Domitian uh is Dick Allen, who was volatile and misunderstood, but way better than anybody cares to remember. Um, I would put Dick Allen in the Hall of Fame and Domitian as an emperor, I think gets a bad rap. Uh, there's a guy called Nerva who was who was uh, the predecessor for the five good emperors. He's he's somewhat associated with him, but he was only emperor for like two years. So he's Wally Pip, whose singular <laughs> accomplishment is giving up his job to somebody way better. Um, who was Trajan, Trajan's Mickey Mantle, who's one of the greatest of all time and also a raging alcoholic. Um, Hadrian is Tony LaRussa because he's an infuriating micromanager and pompous know-it-all but also undeniably like, some successful. Success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Antonius Pius. These are the five good emperors. Um, is Bobby Cox who's just a man presiding over a golden age. Oh, Marcus Aurelius is Greg Maddox. Um, oh. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, overly cerebral but always focused on uh, his on practical application. Precise, precision. Oh, God. And then this, I like I scanned this last night. I've forgotten a lot of this. So com- you guys know Commodus? Yes. 
Okay, because he's this is Joaquin. If if you're listening to this, if you saw Gladiator, the Joaquin Phoenix character is Commodus, and and Commodus is widely viewed as sort of the moment the decline and fall of the Roman Empire like truly begins. That's that's where Gibbon starts this. So uh, so the comp is Commodus when CBS bought the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we got here? Alexander Severus. Oh, Maximinius Thrax is Al Habrowski, right? Because he was the first barbarian emperor. Mm. Um, oh, this is a good. This is a good one too. This is another Yankee joke. Um, during the crisis of the third century, there was this period where there was like there was kind of a new emperor. Like every six months, um, they, the guys were just getting assassinated and they'd drop off. So I wrote all emperors from AD two forty four to two sixty: Bill Verdon, Billy Martin, Dick Hauser, Bob Lemon, <laughs> Billy Martin the second, Dick Hauser the second, Gene Michael, Bob Lemon the second. Gene Michael II, Clyde King, Billy Martin III, Yogi Berra, Billy Martin IV, Lou Pinella, Billy Martin V, Lou Pinella II, Dallas Green, Bucky Dent, Stump Merrill, Buck Showalter. Amazing. <laughs> and, then like, Valer- and, then, and then Valerian is Joe Torrey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, Sticks it who out. I wrote, yeah. Re- who, restabilizes. Who finally, yeah. Finally, some stability, but is then captured and held hostage by the crapshoot that is the playoffs, um, because that's <laughs> that's what happened. Gallienus is Gene Tennis. I wrote, how good can a lifetime 241 better hitter be? This is really fleshed out. Yeah, I feel yeah. like yeah, 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 no, you're no, just this... giving all this stuff away for free to so the tipping pitch yeah, listeners. No, what great. an honor. And then, oh, and then, so Aurelian is Sandy Koufax. And then the guy who follows Aurelian, or like there was a little blip, there was Probus. Uh, and Probus was actually quite good too. And he was like second in command to Aurelian. So he's Don Drysdale because mm-hmm. um, he's Aurelian's wingman. Um, Imagine having Koufax and Drysdale at the same time. That's crazy. Yeah, my dad like, grew up in LA on those teams. God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm jealous of your dad then. That's insane. Carus Carinus and Numerian, Jerry Hairston, Jerry Hairston Jr., Scott Hairston, <laughs> a family of replacement level emperors. <laughs> uh, Diocle- oh, Diocletian is Branch Ricky um, yeah. because he, he invented the imperial farm system. Uh-huh. Um, so that's good. Uh, Constantius Chlorus is um, that's Constantine's father. Yeah. Uh, so he's Ken Griffey Senior, right? Mm-hmm. Who has a good career in his own right, but is destined to be overshadowed by his son. Um. Oh God. And then I oh, I take a real shot at Albert Pujols right here. Oh no. Constantine Albert Pujols, brilliant early career, then moves halfway across the world, outwardly pious, but often masks selfish and unpleasant behavior. <laughs> wow. Wow. Wow, that I took a real. I must. I was mad at Albert Pujols. About yeah, I guess <laughs> we have to situate ourselves. Ten years ago, this must have been like what Albert Pujols did. Was he like leaving the Cardinals for more money? Was that was that he, the angle of that? No. Well, he. I think it was right when he left the Cardinals for the Angels, and I think he was doing this like this routine about how the Cardinals like disrespected him. Um, and he's, he's one of those guys that really has that, like, sort of like, you must respect Albert Pujols. Um, and I'm a great person and I'm, I'm, he's, he's very, you know, overly Christian about, you know, sort of everything that he does. And so I think I was just like kind of annoyed at his, um, (laughs) his antics, you know? Yes. We've come all the way back around though. He's cool. cool Moral grandstanding. I mean, shit, man. I, Albert Pujols might start first base for me. Um, when he, when he, when he was in his prime, I mean, there's maybe not a better first baseman who ever played for sure. Nickname the machine. Yeah. Julian, the apostate. He's the guy who, after uh, the empire Christianized, he's the one who tried to like undo the Christianization and return to, um, (laughs) return to the old days. (laughs) So I wrote Comerica park, 
2000 <laughs> to 2003 in an age of exploding offense, an attempt to bring back the dead ball era, <laughs> which is also, which is, that's all also now like a deep cut, right? Like Petco park probably would, would have worked better for that joke. Yeah. Um, Valens is the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies. I don't even remember why I wrote that. <laughs> you were just oh, in your bag. Man, Valens is the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies, man. And then, oh, and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll end it right here. Uh, Theodosius was Alex Rodriguez, hey, who yeah. was a, who was a giant and uh, who was once excommunicated by St. Selig of Milan and forced to serve 211 games of penance for his sins. <laughs> well done. Round of applause yeah. for that. Yeah, thank that was... you. So this is, this is what I get up to in my spare time. Yeah. Get wild and crazy stuff. My yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Would you like to plug anything specifically for the listeners of the tipping pitches podcast? Well, I mean, buy my books, please. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, but I am actually about to start a new podcast uh, that will be focused on history books. Um, it'll be kind of like a, a weekly history book show with uh, a woman named Alexis Coe, who wrote a great biography of George Washington a couple of years ago called You Never Forget Your First. Um, and we are going to, we're getting together. Um, that's actually starting now. Uh, so the show doesn't exist quite yet, but probably in the next like six, eight weeks, we'll start dropping episodes and it's, it's like a book of the week thing. We'll just, we'll pick a book, hopefully a new book, um, you know, get, get some new author, new historian to come on and talk about their book and what's coming out and hopefully just kind of become the place you go. If you want to know, um, what the new history books are and what you should be, uh, what you should be reading out there. Love it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you, Mike Duncan. Thank you to you, Alex. You continue to just... You're putting up like 30 and 10 about the A's. You know? Credible efficiency in the face of adversity. You're just getting up... You're getting up shots. Still efficient. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you uh, letting me uh, sit on the sidelines for the next couple weeks with regards to the A's. (laughs) Oh, I, I thought you were saying in general. I thought you were, no. you were just consigning me to do the podcast by myself for a few weeks while you just take some time away to search, you know, well, search within yourself. I might need to. That's a funny idea. Podcast sabbatical. <laughs> just like off for a week. If there would ever be a time to do one. Alex is uh, playing his podcast sabbatical card this week. <laughs> <laughs> Vetoed. Denied. Denied. Denied Bad. sabbatical. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!